0: Hi, Fee Hills here from the Virtual Coffee House, and welcome to episode five. Today I'm delighted to be here with a lady called Colette Stone who I've known for a number of years actually and she is a consummate OD professional with a deep experience of working with senior leaders and their top teams on business development. Now she has done an enormous amount of work not only across the civil service many departments in the civil service, but also as a volunteer with uniformed youth organisations across the world in a leader development role. Now, I feel honoured to be working on a very exciting project with Colette, developing a mind-nudging sprint, specifically to take a broader look at the power of shaping questions to build a learning culture in organisations. Now, I don't need to say, if you're here listening to this, that that's a subject that's going to be very interesting to you. Which brings us on to what we're going to be focusing on during this episode. Welcome, Colette. Hi, thanks, Bee. What got you interested in this intriguing, very complex subject?
1: I've spent a lot of time sitting in or being a member of senior teams with important agendas, Uh, and with tight timescales but really needing to crack on and get some good decisions made at that meeting and I've always noted when uh, a really excellent chairperson would be working really hard to get a meeting to make a decision and uh, for some reason things were stalling that he or she would ask great questions uh, of the meeting what they wanted to do when they wanted to do it and you quite often the answer was non-committal or silent or just a row of faces looking back at the chairman with nothing to say. And you and I both know that that's never the case. Those people around that table have always got a lot to say. So why was the questioning from the chairperson not encouraging the people at the meeting to respond? And that's a little microcosm of what started to intrigue me about this, because if it's not working there, then pretty much any big strategy that an organisation wants to deliver, and in our case, our interest in uh, developing a learning culture, it's, the initiatives are probably not going to survive beyond the boardroom. And that's when I thought this is something that's worth dreading down into. And that's why I think why we're here today.
0: It certainly is. So tell me a little bit about, and I don't want to make it as simplistic as questioning techniques, because there's far more to it than that, isn't there?
1: We're here, I think, because it's the step beyond the introduction to techniques of questions, isn't it? So we're all familiar with the difference between uh, I'm asking a closed question because I just want some information from you or I'm asking. uh, And usually that's a yes or a no. Mm -hmm. Uh, How are you feeling today is not a closed question. That would be more of an open question. And I ask an open question because I want to understand more of what you think rather than what I need to know. So it's not in that territory. That's very important, but it's not there. For me, it's about the intent behind the question that you're asking. Why are you asking that question? What is it that you want to have happen in the mind of the person that you're talking to? So how many times... Have we heard at meetings, networking meetings, small gatherings, all the exchanges when you get there of people saying, oh, hello, how are you? And you can tell from that question whether the question is, how are you? That's just something I say because I'm now going to move on and talk about myself. Or how are you? I genuinely want to know. How are you at the moment? Because I care about how you're doing and it'll make a difference. So this meeting or this gathering if I know that you're okay so that's what I mean by intent we can choose all sorts of questions but what matters to me is the purpose of that question the intent and when we're in a meeting situation when the intent is more about the questioner than the, que- the person being asked the question the effect it has on me and I think many people is that it shuts me down if I think this person is asking me how I am because it's just a formal introduction, I'm probably not going to tell them. I'm going to say, "Oh, fine," and then we'll both move on. And in that moment, the questionnaire has lost the opportunity to learn more about my my well being, how I'm seeing that event, if there's anything I want to share with them. I'm not going to do any of that because we've just gone through an, an, a kind of format of, "How are you? Fine, fine, okay, good." So there's. The power of this is around breaking that habit to begin with. How can we do that differently so that the other person knows there's a genuine interest there, but not spend the whole of the warm-up time at the meeting in hearing everybody's life histories? Because I guess that's part of what's behind this, is we don't actually have the time for everyone to share, this is how I'm feeling at the moment. So we tend not to ask it. But I've been in meetings... Uh, Over the years, where that's actually, it starts to feel a bit brutal when you come into a meeting, and there's no opportunity at all to ask people how they are. It goes straight into right agenda item one: apologies for absence. So you've got a group of people sitting around that table who are holding on to all sorts of thoughts and emotions and beliefs about the meeting, and the chairperson doesn't know that they haven't unlocked it. There's a whole load of data there that they could use, and it's kept prisoner. Why bother with that data? Well, that's going to give you some great clues into what your learning culture is like in your organisation. How willing are your employees to share with each other some genuine information about how they're feeling? How willing are they to tell more senior people what's going on for them? And underneath all of that is the uh, the issue of a safe working environment. Yeah. And then as we know, fee-, fee from the work that you're doing, That leads us into a whole huge amount of uh, interest and research around preventative well-being and feeling safe, well and happy in the workplace. So a simple question, what got me into it? But that's the trail that I'm following at the moment. Talk to me about questions that drive thinking. I might ask you a question having made a statement before it, Fee. So I might say, Fee, that's a really interesting thing that I've heard there can you tell me more about that? Or I'd love you to tell me more about that. So I'm putting it straight back, the responsibility for moving that conversation on, I'm acknowledging the value of it, and then I'm giving it straight back to you so that if you want to, you can develop that thought. And if you do want to, then I'll, by default, have learned some more about how you are, who you are and what matters to you.
0: Okay, so when you're working with an organisation, How can you tell if everyone feels safe and knows how to ask great questions in the right way at the right time? My
1: first contact when I'm working with an organisation is usually to come and sit in at a a senior meeting. So I'm there as an observer and that's what I'm doing. And I don't speak, I don't contribute, but I'm watching and listening to see how things are for those people around that table. And... When I see that positive learning culture in play, what I can see are people looking relaxed, whatever their level or grade or job role, uh, and usually there'll be a mixture in that meeting, all of those people looking comfortable to be together. And uh, there's a real sense of no question is too daft to ask. Uh, The only bad question is the one that you don't ask. Is that kind of energy that's in that meeting. That tells me, oh, this is a good place for um, people taking responsibility for their learning because they're happy to show up at that meeting and talk. They might need a little bit of encouragement from whoever's chairing in terms of do feel free to, to chip in because this is your t- topic we're talking about. And the individual takes that at face value because it feels safe to do so and their contribution is welcome. So that atmosphere fee is what I'm what I'm looking for and often find in an organization where I know that when we leave the meeting, that's likely to be throughout the organization. And I'll next most typically go and spend some time with a small group of more junior staff or or I'll go, I'll be invited to a big town hall meeting to see how the bigger picture goes. And that will play across I'll see in the smaller group people who are not afraid to ask me questions. And uh, and that we can have some fun with it, and it's usually a light-hearted uh, session, even if it's a serious topic, because there's that level of comfort and relaxation, and good fit around. We're all here to learn. We all have the same vision of a, a, an organisation that meets its objectives, and we do good work. And the best way to do good work is to be clear about how, and how it involves talking to each other and asking useful. And insightful questions. The reverse of that is that if we go to the other end of life, individual performance appraisal world, mm-hmm. which in some organisations is is very successful, and in others is a source of some, if I may say, so great pain, at the end of the reporting year. And throughout the companies and organisations where it's not painful, what I've seen happen there is that individuals feel happy and confident in asking other people, how am I doing? And they genuinely want to know, tell me how I'm doing because if it's if there's something I could do differently or better, I really want to know that, and then I'm going to oh. work out how to make that happen.
0: So I'm inviting feedback?
1: Absolutely, inviting feedback uh, at appropriate times, and by appropriate times, I'm, I mean maybe maybe privately, maybe in a, at a meeting. But uh, a positive approach from the chair would be to have it as part of the, the general conversation at a meeting, rather than the more painful, right, agenda item seven, we're going to talk about performance and how we're all doing. Because when that happens, you can just see everyone at the meeting freeze. But uh, just as part of everyday working habits, how are we doing with this? Who's Doing well? How how's that happening? Who feels that they're they've hit a block, or they need some unpacking of a bit of this, so that we can all move forward? Any of those kind of questions. Uh, but then I noticed, I just noticed, is there a response? And if there isn't a response, then I my hunch that I then work on exploring is, does it not feel quite safe enough to do this? What's going on here in terms of well-being? Can I just
0: interject there and ask a question? yes so and it's a bit of an assumption can i assume or can we assume that the ability to develop great questioning around an organization may require that psychological safety is in place people feel safe enough to speak up and ask questions and do you think that is a lot of the problem that they don't feel safe enough is that what you're saying
1: Yes, for me, that's absolutely what I'm saying, where somebody, where an employee or a volunteer, whatever the context, if they're at a meeting and they don't feel welcomed, valued, um, safe to ask the more challenging questions without some kind of negative response, where they're feeling positive and good about being there, then you're going to see a developing, growing, blooming culture of people that want to learn and do more. Contribute more and just generally collectively do a good job. Soon as you knock any of that, in my experience, then all bets are off in a way. The questioning stops. Then you're into that territory, if you've ever come across it, where people are primed before the meeting to ask the question when they get into the meeting so that the topic can be covered. You don't need any of that in an organization that feels happy to be there and knowing that each of them is is doing a good job.
0: That's really interesting. So there's a lot to this because we need a psychologically safe environment, obviously, to structure of questions. So we need to learn the techniques. We need to learn the appropriateness of our questions. So there is a lot to this.
1: My sense is in our conversation, we're emphasising safety quite a lot. And I just want to position that in um, a broader spectrum of ways that we can tell that there's a good questioning culture in this organisation or um, or business. And um, there's something about individuals being willing to say when they feel they're not very good at something and that that be responded to with support and encouragement rather than judging and blame. So in, in addition to the safety aspect to it, there's also the the perspective that people have on each other's performance that comes into this.
0: Can you give me an example?
1: Someone I was talking to just yesterday was describing how three very well-known people in their field had been invited to come and talk to a group of students. He felt strongly enough about it to tell me that uh, one of them, uh, an eminent person in her field, spent quite a lot of her airtime talking about times when she got something wrong in this particular technique she was talking about. But the other two speakers were gave their attention to how well they've done and how good their work was and how informative their books are. And he found that he really warmed to the first speaker and he was making a mental note to probably never uh, think about or read anything about the publications of the other two speakers. Just on those few minutes in a workshop one day, what he really noticed was that he valued other people's re- willingness to uh, exp- explore vulnerability and say, Do you know, I got that wrong. And then have a good open conversation about why that might have been and what could be done differently and how they could all learn. So there's the learning culture. Everyone learns from a conversation about what went wrong there and how did that happen and how could we stop it? And, and this is territory that's the bread and butter of everyone in the in risk management, uh, everyone who's in project management, everyone who's in change management. It's their everyday task to do just that. And I noticed in my uh, my OD aspect, organisation development aspect, that the way that's done can be so powerful. Those questions can be asked in a way that is obvious they're looking to pursue the guilty. Or they can be asked in a way that is a genuine inquiry into how do we spot that happening next time, whatever that problem might have been and mitigate it in a meaningful way so that people feel valued and actually rewarded for naming something that didn't go so well that they can all work on doing better next time. So there's right in the heart of learning culture.
0: So can we just get a bit more specific on that? Because I'm just picking up on that, and I know we've got a game on that, haven't we, like (laughs) the chain reaction, the blame thing. Yeah. you know, the problem versus the solution focused, is that what you mean there?
1: That's a much more succinct way of describing it, yes. Is that, do the people working on this particular issue see everything as a problem that's got to be fixed or do they see uh, this as opportunities to get things right and do things even better?
0: Right, so that what we're saying is very clearly the learning culture is the solution focused, so it's not focused on Just blaming. But just talk to me a bit about the difference between responsibility and blaming, because sometimes we do need to be held responsible if we do something that's detrimental, don't we? I mean, the organization or or the individual. If people fail, what happens? But then there's this thing is, does that mean that nobody takes responsibility in a learning culture? So talk to me a bit about that. When looking at something that's gone
1: wrong, Mm-hmm. The, the important part here in terms of our conversation at the moment is the questions that get asked in response to that problem or that situation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think, again, in the, in the expertise world of uh, change managers and project managers, this, this will be familiar to them. Uh, and it's around working out at what point the individual involved is to blame, and at what point the organisation they work for is to blame, or whether actually it was an unseen situation and nobody's to blame. But what makes the difference between an okay organisation and a fabulous one is their response to it anyway. We're looking at the problem. Why did it occur? Was this about uh, a lack of knowledge, a lack of skill, a lack of awareness, very familiar questions to everyone in the learning and development field, what was it that the individual didn't have, know, or be aware of, that meant this accident, this problem, this issue hap- was able to happen? I would usually would start there. What what didn't they know? And then I'd look at the responsibility for the knowing. And so, was this information or this skill something that we've given to this individual, mm-hmm. or did we not do that? And you can see that clearly. If we, gave, if we didn't give the individual that knowledge or that skill or that awareness, then it's not easy to make them responsible and accountable for what went wrong. And then, uh, well, if we did give them that, what happened? Where's the learning gap between here's the knowledge you need and the individual not applying it to the situation, which then led to the problem? That's the greyer area. And in there, that's where the great questioning comes in, in terms of was, was it an attitude? Problem. Did the individual feel uninclined to learn that thing or know that thing? Why was that? And then in my my kind of work, where that often leads to is a a falling out with or a misalignment of that individual with the learning goals of the organization. There's often something about, well, I didn't, I didn't believe in that piece of work, or "I, I don't value that that is really going to help me do my job better. So I, I just didn't do it. I clicked onto the online learning, but I didn't really read it. Why? Because I didn't see the point. Why? Because I can't make the connection between
0: that and what the
1: organisation wants me to do.
0: Really interesting. One of the biggest issues at the moment, and I'm sure you know this, is that people are saying they simply don't see the point in half the learning they're given, and they simply don't have the time to do it. So a lot of organizations are spending a lot of money, huge amount of money actually, on providing learning, a lot of it informational based, and they're finding it very, very challenging to engage people um, to, to take part. They just can't understand why they're not taking part. Then the people are saying, well, I don't have the time, I'm too busy, I'm too overwhelmed, I don't have time for that as well. So this is obviously not a learning culture. So talk to us a bit about that. I recognise this is really hard territory, because if there was an easy
1: answer to that, then you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. Mm. But what I've noticed recently, is what I've specifically set out to do, is um, having held some, some senior roles mm. and been privy to some... Um, tough and hard conversations from the most senior about business decisions, organisation decisions. I've taken myself, I've made myself go and uh, volunteer for some roles in organisations where I'm I'm not on the payroll. I'm um, a volunteer contributing some time to something that I find interesting. So I put myself right at the at the heart of new learner, and I'm noticing how much those organisations. Assume I already know about their business, and perhaps all I've seen is what they've put on their website if they've got a website. So there's an assumption that I know more about them than I actually do. And when I go to meetings, uh, again, this is a re- very recent. I was at a meeting yesterday where it felt as though we'd started the agenda halfway through a conversation because half of the people at the meeting meet regularly talk about the, their, their issues all the time, know where they're up to in their debate. And half the meeting were new and didn't have that background. And it was, And I actually yeah. said to the meeting, I don't feel it's appropriate for me to ask the questions that I'm holding at the moment because I'm aware of the shortage of time. So I want you all to know that my silence is not that I have no view It's just that I don't feel able to ask the questions I want to to reach a decision for this agenda item. Now, I think uh, just by the slightly stunned silence, they're not used to, to, to people showing up at their meetings and being that open. And it was helpful because afterwards, a couple of the other new people found me and said, so glad you said that. It was a really helpful point. But interestingly, they didn't feel able to say it themselves. So when you talk about engagement, there are probably lots of reasons why someone doesn't feel engaged, but that's that's top of my mind at the moment. How, how informed are we around the table about what we need to have in our heads in order to help make a decision or decide on a piece of learning? And, but I do recognise that the other end of the scale, because this happened to me as well, is that a three-week induction programme before I can start work with a company, it felt like quite a long time. Was seconded to a global uh, a global organisation oh, that um, was in a complex business where it mattered very much if if mistakes were made. It matters in every business, but for this particular organisation, they needed really really needed to get their their high level decision making right. And therefore, uh, although I was brought in for my uh, OD expertise, I still needed to go through a three week induction around. Um, vision, values, ways of working, organizational culture, mm-hmm. the, the different parts of the business, the different different cultures and uh, values in those different sections before I was allowed to go and practice alone. And that set the culture, my learning culture for my time with that business. I didn't feel comfortable making my own decisions. I spent the time with them regularly checking in and meeting more and more people uh, globally in order to take soundings about what was needed and where they wanted to go. Really interesting bit of personal development for me about what a culture can do very easily to someone who normally has no difficulty in forging a path with how and where to go and learn something. And that's another thing for our list, is that the culture, the tone of the way the organisation runs itself will have a huge impact on how successful your learning culture
0: is going to be. If you walked into a company tomorrow and you'd consider that they had a learning culture, what would it look and feel like from a very high level point of view, obviously?
1: What I always do when I'm visiting a new organisation is from the moment I get out, if it's a, if I've driven there, from the moment I get out of the car in the car park until I meet whoever the senior person is, chief exec, director general, whatever it might be, I'm taking in information about how that organisation Works, how it operates, and in particular, how open is it to learning? Because I'm usually there on a learning agenda and organizations that are uh, full of information. So I, I see notice boards with information around what people can do. I'm seeing the notice boards where they're crammed full of here's your, your lunchtime session on this, and here's your big breakfast session on that, and come and have fun doing this. I'd rather see positive contributions to generally learning than the notice boards which are um, only populated with don't do this notices. Um, um, Health and safety important but if the whole board is covered in don't do this notices I feel a bit despondent before I've actually gone into the building. So I'm looking for visual signs that people enjoy learning. It can be as literal as are there bookcases around where there's materials and resources which are obviously being borrowed yeah. and used or are they all stacked up in neat piles and nobody touches them maybe to dust once a quarter <laughs> I'm, I'm so it lef- doesn't
0: need to be the british library but it does sort of need to be it like, needs to be feel like a learning environment
1: a little bit a little bit casual i, uh, I love seeing offices where there's a space with more comfortable seating and uh, and it's open access but it's quiet so that anyone who wants to just spend half an hour uh, over over a break just thinking or um, go read an article read the newspaper for 10 minutes all of those things that are uh, sometimes frowned on in organizations because if you're sitting and reading something for 10 minutes you're not adding to the bottom line you've got to get on and meet the targets I quite often have conversations with those with middle managers in those organizations who say it's not working uh, well no it's not working because by default you, it, the learning gene is being shut down and it's being told you're not welcome around
0: here learning gene love it so it's so, i mean is this common in the organizations that of the past that you've worked with or in
1: it is common it, it shows up in different ways there's there's something around the senior members of the organisation casting a long shadow and what they consider to be important and what the uh, members of their organisation consider to be important sometimes are not the same and there's very good reasons for that if there's if the people at the top of the office are under pressure from their shareholders let's face it entities that are unknown and invisible to most of the workforce so it could be a shareholders board it could be um, a parent company are holding in another com- country altogether. The all, vast majority of the staff won't know about that, but the, the chief exec will because they're under pressure to deliver. What that can cause is that long shadow with, we haven't got time for all of these secondary activities like um, time out for, for learning unless it's mandatory. So I don't want you to do that. And then that spreads down to middle managers who then, I've seen it often happen, squeeze it out completely. No, there's no time for an off-site. There's no time to have a team think. There's no time for you to go on that course or do that study because we've got targets to meet. Well, bang goes the learning culture. And the ones, the organisations that give some flex and allow people their head and and while still following business objectives, but allow individuals to find a place where they're enjoying their learning, helping them to do more of that, What they get is they get that payback. They get the individual more motivated. They come into work more cheerful about the purpose of why they're there. They deploy their learning. Or sometimes, just maybe for another conversation, it's great to give people the opportunity to go and learn something they don't need. Because although it's not directly relevant to the business they're in, it's, it's flexing their learning muscle, if you like, another metaphor. It's giving them some practice in how to be a, a learner again and can bring that skill back to their organization and they will use it and you will get the
0: payback in time. Talk to me a little bit about the leadership. And we go, we need a learning culture tick. What's the role of the leadership to make that happen or to make sure they don't block that happening? Is that what you've just been talking about or is there something else? That is an absolute must-have from leadership.
1: There is there is more to it, Fee, Certainly, we we would all know that. W- particularly with that issue around, let, so let's get into all of the excuses. My organisations say we're not we're not we don't we're not a learning, or we are a learning culture. But when you have a look, no, they're not. We're sorry, all circuits are busy. The organisations or the individuals that would say to you when you put learning opportunities in front of them and ask them to to connect to it. Don't have time. I haven't got time for that. Some great questions in that area. They are a bit challenging, though. We've not mentioned the power of a challenging question. To give me a challenging question, see if I can answer it. I can't. Well, if we, well, if I take the example of in a business where we're trying to implement and embed a, a, a new learning programme, so several leadership development programmes uh, in my time, that are department-wide, organisation-wide, charity-wide, introducing them into the, the, that situation and uh, starting to get pushback in certain quarters Well, I haven't got time to do all that. Mm-hmm. My challenging questions, and they're, they're kind of known for it, they, when they see me coming, they know the challenging questions are on their way. I uh, might <laughs> sit down with a, with a couple of people affected and I will just say to them quite openly and directly, why is that then? Why haven't you got time for this? Um, um, sometimes they're thrown by the directness of the question because it can feel a bit rude. What do you mean? Why are you questioning me about my time? Senior people, right? Uh, I will I will use this approach both with senior people who are in charge of divisions or uh, occasionally sort of maybe countrywide based. So it doesn't matter how senior. It's just as useful a question with them as it is with um, the colleagues in that business who are uh, at an operational level. I'll ask, I'll ask them as well.
0: Well, suppose they say, I don't need it. I've done this job for 25 years. I've been in this industry. I am considered an expert. I, I, I don't need it, Colette, but what then? My next
1: set of questions would be around, it depends on the context, isn't it? But if it's around mm. a, new, a new policy, A new way of working, I will then ask, uh, in acknowledging your prior experience, could you help me with how you're getting up to date with what the changes are right now? And they may have a really good way that they're doing it, in which case our conversation's pretty much done. Or they might say, oh, okay, then I take your point reluctantly. What is it you want me to do? With the more junior, the, you know, the more junior in the organisation, oh, sadly, God. sometimes the less able you f- feel to make your own arrangements for how you use your time when you're at work. And quite often it comes from there. I haven't got time. What, uh, and This is highly uh, likely to be the response from those colleagues is my, my line manager won't let me. Mm. But then my questions are usually quite open, which is, well, what's that all about then? Why won't they? I think we don't ask that question because we're a bit worried that I'll go down the whinge fest route and there'll be a whole kind of, oh, it's awful. So I'm I'm careful not to let that happen because I want to keep it respectful and to honour the role of everybody in that business. But I will still ask, why is that then? Why won't your line manager do that? And I'll test it. I'll prod it a bit. And when I prod, the questions usually surface either um, not knowing. The line manager didn't know they could give me that time. They didn't know that was allowed, in quotes. Uh, it might be very personal in that the line manager doesn't get time to study and develop, so they don't see why we should. Mm. There's ways to sort that out, obviously, once you know that. Uh, it could be uh, a question of belief. The line manager doesn't believe in it, doesn't think there's any point in us learning X or Y because he can't see the point or she doesn't see the value. So they, they tell us we can learn, but they don't actually make it possible for us to learn. Mm. That one's a bit trickier, because that's now getting into kind of subversive, under the table, what are we dealing with, are we dealing with the top level, yes of course all my staff can have that learning time, Uh, and then the reality, but they're not, and when you go there, quite often, it's back to that shadow being cast by somebody more senior. Uh, we can't let them have that time for learning because it's not adding to the the bottom line we're not hitting our targets that week so there's no way I'm going to let somebody go and have an hour study there or go on a
0: day's workshop there we've got to meet our targets well that is actually what's going on from a lot of feedback that I'm getting and a lot of the research is that's actually the reality of overwhelm especially post-covid is less resource available therefore people have been given higher levels of workload and they're feeling overwhelmed but this is not the burnout syndrome and the last thing they can do is think about learning so that also a learning culture is how we act as we're doing our work so if I'm doing something how I self-reflect on how I did that or we reflect as a group in the moment so it's within the workplace, so it's very informal, but we're doing it all the time as a matter of course. And that's a lot of questioning techniques involved in that. How can we go about creating that? Do you think
1: the way that I would do it, but the way that I do do it, because this puts me in mind of there's a group of business school students that I'm coaching at the moment and uh, in the topic of leadership. And typically, they are they've been out of learning a learning environment for a long time. Maybe the last time they did some learning was when they left college or university, and now it's 10, 15, 20 years later, and they're back in a learning environment. And that in itself is feeling, for some, altogether overwhelming. There's masses of information coming at them from different sources. They haven't got the skill anymore of how to brigade that to make sense of it. They've got tight deadlines coming up. They've got those aforementioned managers saying you can't have study time. Yes, I know we did, but no, you can't. And I get them for uh, about 15, 20 minutes at a time every so often. And most of them come to that slot saying, I don't know what to do. How how do I make sense of all of this? And I can't, I'm not ready for my assignment. It's awful. Um, What I do for them and with them is remind, ask them, why did you sign up to this programme? And I get them back in their headspace of, I wanted to do this. This is going to be good for me. I want to learn what we're learning it's going to help my career and all of those things and then I ask them how are you approaching this mountain of material that you've been given are you attempting to read every single bit of it yes and how far have you got module one and how many modules are there to do before your assignment 10 okay so would you agree that you need a different approach yes so you can hear the coaching questions but the one that floors them regularly which which I love is that I say to them what happens when you're reading something and you're you, you noticing your shoulders go a bit slopey and you can't read that? You read the same sentence 10 times and then you're going to have to have three cups of coffee. How often is that happening? Pretty much all the time. OK, so might that be because you're not enjoying the topic? Silence. Might it be because it doesn't feel relevant? Silence. So what if you gave yourself permission to have fun with this? More silence. And that, that that's the, the, the trigger that I use with this is that we, we are all our own managers of our learning, actually. Even if someone tells mm-hmm. us what to do and when to learn it, we decide how useful we're going to find it, how enjoyable it's going to be, how relevant. And often what's missing is that we're allowed to enjoy it as well. And if we don't enjoy it, then we've got, we're into that whole neuroscience world of our, our brain shuts down It won't let us learn. We're looking for diversionary activity. That's usually much more successful than finishing the reading of this chapter or this module. And underneath all of that, I firmly believe it's about, are we enjoying it? If it's fun and purposeful, we'll make our own way. We'll set our own direction and others will need to keep up with us. If we're hating every minute, it's not going to get done. And when a nice person comes around and says, why haven't you done your training? Oh, I didn't have time.
0: Exactly, I mean, for that to be fair, is why we need experiential learning, isn't it? it yeah, you know, but to balance it out, it can't just be this information-based learning all the time. Not in an exponentially changing workplace. You just said something about we're all in charge of our own learning, ultimately, which of course is true because we're the only ones in our own mind. But you hear a lot of organisations talking about I want people to take ownership for their learning, and I want people to be lifelong learners so just talk to that for a few minutes because what has that got to do with the learning culture if anything and what is the stumbling block here how do we get people to be enthusiastic passionate lifelong learners i look for
1: the disconnect between that statement when i'm when i'm working in an organization the disconnect that might be there between that organise that statement And what's happening on the ground? Because it's usually just a big disconnect. And when the organisation is made aware of the disconnect, they can do something about it. By that, I mean, so there's there's some useful questioning that needs to happen in businesses and organisations about what do we mean by lifelong learner? And even there, there's trouble ahead, because some businesses say, "I, I don't pay you to be a lifelong learner, I pay you To deliver uh, those targets by that deadline. So that's a whole bigger conversation. But for the ones that are more receptive to the value of being a learning culture in terms of the payback they get and the more optimistic and motivated employees they will have, we then look at how possible is it for someone in a relative, usually in a relatively junior position, how possible is it for them to be. A lifelong learner what's the environment environment again what what's the environment like that they're working in what's the support like from their line manager what's the equality like in terms of is it equal uh, access to learning opportunities or just a few people get that what's the funding like there's a lot of um, practical operational questions that can be asked in terms of if you want a learning culture uh, and a lifelong learning mindset how possible is that business making it for those individuals to take you up on that offer? Uh, so then we get into debates around, and they're, they're, they're tough ones. If and I was doing a workshop a couple of months ago where the man, the lead manager, said, uh, "Really glad you're here." We're doing a half day on different leadership choices and styles, and they, they, he really wanted that for his team. But he'd done it in a way that there was an off-site uh, expenditure. He bought There were about 30 people there. He he paid for them all to have a decent lunch. Uh, He brought in some good speakers so that the group would feel valued for the learning they were doing. And they did. You could see they're smiling. They were enjoying themselves. They were having conversations in different ways, different people being networked with. But he took me on one side and I said, how's it going for you? And he said, I've just spent the rest of my year's travel budget on this. So, after today, we're going to have to do a lot more virtual working because we haven't got the, um, we can't cover the expenses. Uh-huh. So, for some, where you've got a really switched on leader who knows the power of a learning culture, the practical choices they're making is where they spend the money. We do have these constraints, don't we? We all do. <laughs> We do, but there's a whole group of people that we could gather together to talk about the, the 70-20-10 model of learning, you know, where mm. 10% is, is, takes the budget. Mm. But the 70% is learning on the job. And I think this is where uh, you were headed before, Fee, in that even if we're, not on, if we're not sitting in a training room telling ourselves I'm being trained or I'm not on a workshop, I'm learning, but we're just doing our job, There are so many ways that we can approach that so that we learn from the job that we're
0: doing right now, if you have the mindset for it. But I do feel this is where the quality of developing much more sophisticated questions can actually go a long way to fix that challenge, which is how do we integrate learning into our daily working lives has to be about questions. Do you agree?
1: Well, I, I do, but I just want to make sure that we don't drop mindset on the way. For me, yeah. you build or grow a mindset through the questions that you ask and the, the data that you get back and the way that you process it shapes the mindset you have. If you have a um, a glass half empty approach and looking for what went wrong and uh, anticipating that it's going to go wrong again, then your mindset is gradually getting set in concrete in terms of no point, this is all very difficult. But if you're asking, uh, how did that happen? Questions. You remember we were talking about, well, why? What's the root cause of that? How can we stop that happening again? That solution focus that individuals can bring, we're in charge of that. We are, each of us can make a, a choice around, do I see this as an opportunity or am I going to be miserable about it and tell people how unhappy I am? And if we go down the former path of, well I might not like what's happening in this business at the moment or in my team but I can have a look for what the opportunities are from it in terms of I've had have coaches saying well I've learned never to do it that way again might be a bit negative mindset but it sure as heck is learning and it does teach mm-hmm. them something about how they shape themselves for positive good
0: I've really really enjoyed this conversation and I think it's a really good segue into you coming back You doing more episodes on the how, more specifically about the structure of questioning, the quality of the questioning, the appropriateness. So maybe thinking about critical questions when we need those versus creative questioning. I'm up for that fee, definitely. And thank you for the questions that you've been asking
1: today because they've helped provoke some thoughts around this whole really important topic. Um, I'm very glad to come back and have some of those conversations
0: with you again. I do actually feel you've got a lot to share and I'm sure our listeners are going to totally agree. But we want more of it, Colette. We want more of you talking about questioning and how we can really improve it in our teams and organisations to make a better place to work and to create a learning culture. And when the Mind Nudging Sprint is out, we will let people know, won't we, Colette?
1: Definitely, definitely.
0: On that note, Colette, how can people get hold of you should they want to reach out to you? Either, is it LinkedIn or email? What's the best way to reach out to you?
1: LinkedIn is definitely the easiest. If you're on
0: LinkedIn then uh, my profile is there and I'd love to hear from you anytime. I might actually put your LinkedIn profile in the sort of description here. So if people want to reach out to you and connect, they can.
1: Thank you. That would be really helpful.
0: All that's left to say for me is thank you for listening and over and out.